Welcome to today's episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Well, David, we're taking on a big topic this week, the topic of rural uh, broadband. Uh, It's everybody's intention that all Canadians someday will have access to high-speed internet. Easier said than done, obviously. Uh, there are some communities, some people living in uh, communities that are so rural, it, it's virtually impossible to provide that service in the way that we currently do it, which is over lines on poles. Um, so I had a really good uh, conversation with Lee Bragg, who is the executive vice president of Eastlink. Eastlink is a good story, by the way, uh, even before we get into broadband. You know, one of the things that we talked about that a lot of people uh, probably don't understand is that Eastlink has been a pioneer in the telecommunication uh, industry. Uh, They were the first to uh, figure out and to uh, bring to the market um, TV over cable lines. And um, that was a, a major breakthrough. Uh, a lot of the other larger, much larger companies were working on it, but they really weren't sure they wanted to do it. But Eastlink did it, and, uh, and uh, that was a, a major change in the future of that company. They were also the first in Canada to offer bundle services where you could you know, put your telephone service with your cable service and, um, and internet. And then they later added mobile services. So you get one bill. And uh, uh, I can tell you, uh, having worked with the Bell organization and its predecessors uh, during that period, that ate into a lot of market share for those companies because they couldn't respond as quickly. And it took them quite a while to get their own bundles going to compete. So pretty innovative company. And uh, it is the largest, by the way, independently owned um, telecommunications company in Canada. And at the end of the, the interview, I asked him about the future, <laughs> given the fact that Shaw has recently um, uh, been uh, purchased uh, by Rogers, still subject to um, uh, competitive uh, decisions on that, but nonetheless, and you, you'll be interested in his response on that one as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really good to have competition, even in markets like telecommunications. And I remember when I worked at MBTEL more than 20 years ago, it was the same thing. Eastlink was this little sort of annoying upstart that, as you said, was developing new products and putting competitive prices out there and stealing market share. But I think that's good overall for the industry. I think moving forward, it will be interesting to see if small little companies like Eastlink can survive in the new uh, competitive landscape. Will will local providers like Eastlink, and there's not many of them left across Canada. There's a few. Uh, will they will they survive, or will they be uh, tempted to sell out at a nice high valuation and uh, uh, you know and, and sail off into the sunset? But uh, your conversation today on rural broadband is a big part of that, particularly in the context of Atlantic Canada, because we have such a high share of the population in rural areas. Although, as you said, this is really more about those that are even further out in more remote areas or areas that it's very hard to cover uh, from a competitive perspective or from a market perspective uh, with broadband service. Yeah, and as Lee pointed out, you know, in Canada, about 85% of households now have high speed. So we're down to the last 15% or so. He said the numbers are similar 
in Atlantic Canada, I, I, I thought the numbers uh, in, in the case of Nova Scotia might be closer to 90% now. I'm not really sure. But, you know, that last 10% are going to be the most challenging because uh, one of the things that he pointed out that I thought was really an interesting comparison, he said that uh, it cost his company about $50,000 a kilometer to string the lines between the poles. And that doesn't count the cost of, you know, from the pole to the household. So in an urban area, he might get 100 customers to support that expenditure. In a rural community, he might get five, the six, the seven. And so, you know, it's 20 times or 15 to 20 times more per customer to do the uh, the installation. Um, and so that's why government is subsidizing it because <clears throat> companies can't, they can't make it work. And uh, but he also said something really interesting. He said he's caught between two conflicting federal policies. On the one hand, the federal government is uh, strongly supporting uh, rural broadband. Uh, they set up a big fund. He told me, I think there's a fund that's got at least something like seven hundred million dollars currently available. And and it's still available uh, because uh, most companies don't <clears throat> necessarily want to build out those uh, rural communities because of a second policy, which says anybody can access the infrastructure, a smaller I ISP, and provide that service at a lower cost so that they could get the customers. EastLink would build out the, the, the infrastructure and not get a return on it. So why do it? Very good, very good, very good uh, example of the challenges of building into these uh, rural areas. Yeah, you, may, you. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say you would think that that should be an easy fix you if uh, if Eastlink is going to be the wholesaler there or provide the the line to the community and pay for it. Then you would think there'd be a return on that investment that could be built into the price. But obviously, according to Bragg, that's not happening right now. Yeah, the other thing that we talked about, I think that's really interesting, and this is probably the solution for the most remote. Um, uh, houses uh, living in uh, rural areas is the satellite uh, internet services that are currently being offered by a, a variety of providers, <clears throat> including Elon Musk and his Starlink uh, service, as, which is part of his SpaceX uh, company. Uh, they'll put a satellite into your home for about, I think, $700, charge you about $100 a month, and you can get high-speed um, internet service. Now, there, it, there's a bit of a qualifier to that. It's not as fast as internet service over fiber lines, and it never will be. Uh, and part of the reasons for that is that the satellites, even though they're in sub-orbit around the Earth, they're still a long ways away, and to send a signal takes time. So that's the problem that I don't know if it can be overcome. Nonetheless, it is access to a higher speed than is currently available. But it's also sub subject to weather disruptions as well uh, as normal satellite service is. So it's a, it's a pretty good option. And um, it may be the only option for some people to ever get to 100% uh, access. There was an article this week suggesting that uh, Elon Musk could become the world's first trillionaire at some point down the road because of all of his different businesses between the, the, the uh, auto manufacturing company, the space company, uh, and so on. We'll see if that happens. But uh, I did want to ask you, before we get to your interview, 
because it seems to me this issue of rural broadband raises a broader question about rural development in general. And you and I, with this podcast is about economic development. It's about how do we move this region forward proactively. We have 40 plus percent of our population that live in rural areas, although you said, as you pointed out rightly, a lot of those rural areas are, are you know, uh, really tiny urban centers. They're not, they, they, they have a lot of the characteristics of urban centers. But I guess the broader question is for, for throughout history, you know, electricity has been the same price no matter where you live. The cost of roads, the cost of snowplow, uh, you know, many of the costs of services that people expect in the province are very little, very different, very, not very different if you live in urban or rural areas. And in most of the region, the property tax rates are considerably lower or the assessment values are lower and you end up paying lower taxes anyway. So I guess the question for you is on a broader sort of strategic level, do you think this discussion around rural broadband is is something that, that's broader, part of this broader discussion about rural development? What is your position on rural development? Should we continue to offer uh, public services and public access no matter where you live in the province at the same cost? Or should we start charging more depending on where you live and how far you are from, uh, from the center of, for services? Well, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I, I've been thinking about that quite a bit, uh, David, you know, uh, and the conversation with Lee uh, crystallized something in, in, in my mind that I really hadn't thought about before. Obviously, the cost of providing service, getting the service to homes is one that's being subsidized by the Canadian taxpayer. It's kind of what happened with the electrification of rural communities. You know, it was a for the common good and, uh, you know, the, we all shared in the cost of putting the infrastructure in. Now, once the infrastructure in, one of the other problems uh, really has to deal with the operational costs of maintaining that service. And they're not the same. If you live in rural Canada, the cost of servicing you is much higher than if you're living in, in an urban community. And it's just, it's really time and, and money expenses. So you can only get so many appointments done in a rural area relative to an, uh, an urban area. Cost of vehicles and and fuel is much higher. So maybe it's kind of a, a two-parter. So yeah, let's make sure we can get the infrastructure built, but maybe there should be, you know, uh, pay closer to the cost of the service because, you know, is it fair to subsidize forever something like uh, high-speed internet? Um, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still a bit on the fence on that. I, in a perfect world, everybody should get everything for free. <laughs> At least that seems to be the way with the, some of the thinking in government these days. But at the same time, um, people living in more urban areas uh, of, uh, of Canada are paying a pretty steep price to subsidize the lifestyle of people living in more rural areas. And I have nothing against people living in rural areas. They should have uh, as much as what everybody else has at the one time, but they're also paying lower taxes. They're not really, this is what what's going on, by the way, in the, in the province of New Brunswick right now with the uh, municipal reform discussions. You know, there's a sense that there's a lot of people who are not paying for the services, not, not necessarily paying, but contributing to the paying the cost of the services, and there's got to be some fairness there. Uh, I don't know what the uh, I don't know what the right formula is, but uh, I don't think you should expect to live anywhere and expect the same level of services without without maybe making a slightly bigger contribution to that. 
Well, I, I would just say part of the discussion has to be transparency around costs, because I know right. from I've, I know a lot of people living in rural areas and small towns, uh, and they believe they're actually overpaying for some services. Uh, so there is a real disconnect between the understanding of how much it costs to service communities with, with various public infrastructure and private infrastructure as well. Uh, but I, I do think part of the discussion has to be around the transparency and trying to understand just how much it costs to, do, to, do, you know, to pick up garbage or plow the roads or put, put down electrical lines or whatever. Yeah, we have the same problem in Halifax, by the way. You know, we have a municipality the size of PEI and, and the cost of service delivery is much greater outside of the core than uh, as you would expect. And, um, and yet we're talking, you know, uh, municipal taxes here. Um, a lot of people living outside of the suburban and urban cores are subsidized by the people living in those in those areas, and they don't they think they're paying more than they should, <laughs> but they don't know the actual cost of how much how much it's costing to make provide garbage services or police services or fire services or whatever. Yeah. And I think that you know if they knew how much it, it, it costs, they might have a greater appreciation for the value that they get for those services. Same so here, to, So today, you're going to have a good primer with, with Lee Bragg, a good primer on rural broadband in Atlantic Canada. Yes, and I just uh, one other thing before I uh, turn it over to that conversation is I did ask about the future of AceLink. They're a prime, prime target in what looks to be a consolidating market they have about 500,000 customers and companies are assessed on the number of customers. There's a value against each customer because it's kind of a lifetime annuity go that goes with it. You'll be interested in his answer to that. So here's our conversation with Lee. On today's Insights podcast, we take a close look at the challenges of providing high-speed internet services to rural populations. And we are pleased to be joined by Lee Bragg, the Executive Vice Chair of Easlink. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Don. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start by finding out a little bit about your background and the journey that led you to your current role as Executive Vice Chair of Easlink. Uh, well, uh, lots of people know I started out in the blueberry business as a kid and uh, had a variety of jobs, and I say was developing a pretty good career. But then, uh, oh, in about 1994 or 1995, we had uh, deregulation had come to the telecommunication industry, and we were, you know, now able to compete in the telco world, and vice versa. The telcos were now going to be able to compete with us, and there were, you know, lots of people exiting the business at the time, and we had quite a good discussion and thought, well, maybe this is going to be an opportunity, and we should we should get more engaged. At the time, we were really, uh, we were involved in cable operations, but we didn't have any family uh, directly into it. We were all working in the food business or other areas. So my father decided it was time that we had some family involvement. So I, I always joke a little bit. I don't know what I did wrong. I went from running a, being a plant manager, running a factory with 150 people in it to climbing poles, doing installs <laughs> a week later. So and I spent I spent about a year uh, in sort of low level operational roles, answering phones in the little office in Amherst, climbing poles, doing installs. Uh, then I went to uh, with just at that point in time acquired the Truro cable system from former partner of ours Stuart Rath. I went in as the manager of that little system, and then over time, 
consolidated the management of a lot of our rural systems, uh, was director of operations for the rural systems, then moved to Halifax and we started to combine the rural operations with the city, came up with the name Eastlink and then just continued up through the management ranks to where I am today. Yeah, so you had uh, you had on the feet, uh, on the ground uh, experience and doing the uh, the real hard work of developing a cable system. Obviously, that must have been helpful. It, uh, uh, it helps to know a business before you try to manage a business. Hundred percent about that. Yeah, tell us a little about Eastlink's operations, maybe including the the communities that you currently serve, maybe the size of your workforce and the number of customers that uh, that. Uh, uh, you serve? Sure. We, uh, you know, most people know us as a, as an Eastern based company, which obviously we are, uh, you know, it would take me forever to list every community, but, uh, we are the, the main cable TV internet provider for Nova Scotia. There are a couple of little pockets that we don't service. Uh, we are also the same in Prince Edward Island. We have most of rural Newfoundland. Uh, we do not operate in St. John's or Cornerbrook, those are Rogers areas. Now, happens to be where most of the people live. So we have we have all the other little communities that have cable TV. And we have a small corner of New Brunswick in sort of Sackville, the Port, Port Elgin area. And then we have a cluster of systems around Sudbury and Timmins, and another cluster in Southwest Ontario around Port Elgin and Aylmer, uh, Goderich and uh, Manitoulin Island and a few communities. Uh, and then out west, we operate quite a few systems in, in uh, Alberta and BC. The two main ones are Grand Prairie, Alberta, and then Delta, BC. Delta, sort of an area south of Vancouver, plus about another 50 or 60 small communities. Cold Lakes, St. Paul, Bonneville, uh, Camrose, Wetaskiwin. Uh, uh, the Sunshine Coast in BC, so a bit of a, a bit of a, a smattering of systems across the country. And the number of people that uh, currently work for Eastlink would be uh, about how many? Four, we have about fourteen hundred sort of full time, and then we we support uh, I call them significant contractors, some who do uh, some contact calls, call center work for us. Uh, about 150 or 200, and about another 150 or 200 uh, technical installers who do uh, a variety of installation work and some service work for us. So a pretty good sized workforce. Yeah, for sure. And 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 the total number of customers that you serve would be about, about a half a million. No kidding. Well, that's a big number. Um, you are in a capital intensive industry that is constantly changing in terms of technology, obviously. What are the biggest challenges you face in your business today, Lee? You know, lots of people ask me that, and many would assume it's, it's technology and being a relatively small player in a, in a global industry. Uh, it's funny, I say it's not really technology. I mean, we've been able to handle uh, any economy of scale issue. Uh, our biggest challenge is the the regulatory environment, federal government, bad policies. I mean, we have, you know, a variety of them and it's, uh, you know, and it makes it difficult to continue to invest in the business when, you know, your biggest concern, like I compete against Bell and the federal government is a bigger threat to my business than Bell Canada. It's kind of ridiculous, but that's, that's where we are. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm sure we're going to get a little bit more into that uh, <laughs> later. <laughs> Can you provide our listeners with an idea of uh, your annual capital expenditures, just to give a scope of... Uh, a, a ballpark is about, you know, it fluctuates depending on what's going on, between 150 and $200 million a year. Uh, and what what drives the fluctuation generally is any expansion issues that we have. I mean, we've just recently talked about, I think it's about $26 million expansion in cellular in northern New Brunswick. So that would have us, you know, a little disproportionately high this coming year because of that. But if we're, I mean, and to be honest, we had been spending more money than that, more capital, upgrading more rural networks. But as I referenced earlier, some federal policies around you know, affordability and rural high-speed internet have made it almost impossible for us to invest in rural areas. So we've actually cut our capital quite, you know, back by 50 or $75 million a year from where it normally would be. So, but that's the range. And East, Eastlink began a, a, as a strictly cable company, as you've referenced, and <clears throat> then evolved into a telecommunications company. It's my understanding that Eastlink was the first company to figure out how to deliver telephony services over cable wire. How was Eastlink able to achieve this accomplishment that other much larger larger cable companies could not do initially? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. And lots of, I mean, it's interesting the way you frame it about figure out how to do it. And it wasn't really us figuring out how to make the technology work. That had been figured out. I think what made us unique is we were we were brave enough to actually try it. And I think what held back many of the others were, as I mentioned earlier, it was at the time we did it, it was deregulation was new. I think it was hard for some of the other telecom providers or cable companies who had been, you know, a cable company for years and kind of stuck in certain paradigms about, you know, what their business should be or what it could do. I think our advantage was we we grew up in the food business, which was very competitive, rapidly changing. So I, I said part of the advantage we didn't we didn't know what we didn't know. So we just said, well, sure, this technology is available. Why wouldn't we take advantage of this new regulatory environment and and try to compete? So I think we you know we weren't stuck in those paradigms. They were mostly just that business issues, paradigms, scale issues. I can remember talking to you know, I won't name them, but some of the others in our industry who just couldn't couldn't get their head around this, the scope of having to change their business to be as reliable as a telco and how could they roll it out? Well, we just started and decided that we were going to be reliable. I mean, we we were the worst people for managing our own network. I used to joke, we would take the network off at two o'clock in the afternoon to fix a problem because it was convenient for us not convenient for our customers. I said, if we if we'd stop shutting the network off, we could choose to be reliable. Uh, and it was just changing the workers so that we worked from midnight to 6 a.m. on the network, just things like that. And uh, But I think that was hard for many of the others who have been operating a business in a certain way for so long, just to, to get their head around how to change the business parameters to actually take advantage of this. Now, Obviously, everybody else eventually got there, but uh, you know, we were just either brave or stupid. I don't know. But, but you were the first. And we were I the think first. That, I think first in Canada. First, first in Canada, Canada, second in North America. That's a, that's a big achievement, Lee. 
Eastlink was also the first company in Canada, I believe, to bundle services, including cable, internet, uh, telephone, and eventually mobile services. I think that was an important milestone in the telecommunications industry. I mean, you know, I did a lot of market research for the telecommunications industry, you know, over a long period of time. And, you know, that was a big moment, I think, in telecommunications (laughs) history. And now it's the standard, of course, but... Uh, you know that how did you how did you get to that making that decision was it was it hard to bundle uh it's funny i mean technically it wasn't i mean you're just sending a you, like i could send you a bill for at the time $35 for telephone service and another bill for $40 for your cable service and another bill for at the time i can't remember 39.95 for internet service all me sending you three bills that was the way everybody did it uh, and, and bundling it. So it wasn't technically hard. I, I Really, the biggest challenge was we, we call it sticker shock. At the time in the industry, we weren't sure whether if we sent one bill for $100, which doesn't sound like much now, but in, I think it was 1998 when we started in 99, $100 was a lot for the cable company or even the telco to send a bill out for. But we, uh, I think we convinced ourselves, said, well, you know, our customers aren't stupid. We're not really fooling them by sending them three bills for $40 instead of one bill for $99 was the number we came up with. Uh, I said, you know, the customers will do the math. I think they'll appreciate the value. And we just, we went with it. And it, it really, I knew, not, I'm at the worst marketer in the world. So I, I knew we were having some level of success. When time went on, we, uh, it was almost like the $99 bundle became the brand. I'd overhear people talking about how much do you pay for the $99 bundle? I said, well, okay, now that's success. When somebody says, oh, I pay $119 for the $99 bundle. And somebody else like, oh, I only pay $115 for the $99 bundle. So I thought, well, okay, we've got something here. And, you know, since then, obviously the prices have changed, but it's, uh, you know, we were trying to we were trying to convey convenience that we were the one company that could do all this. And I think it would be, would have been a confusing message to the customers to say, to try to pitch them on, you know, one phone number to call for your problems, one person to talk to, you know, one guy coming to your house to install it and yet you're going to get three separate bills. So I think we just felt operationally it made some sense and seemed to work. Well, I know it did work because uh, at the time uh, we were doing a lot of research uh, with your competitor, Bell, that's Bell today. But of course, it was the individual um, individual telephone companies in, in, in Atlantic Canada. You, you gained a lot of market share with that bundling, did you not? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was like we I remember at the time it was, and it was shortly after we'd launched telephone as well. So we had these three awesome products. Uh, we were doing we had budgeted on about eight or 10 installs of telephone a day. And we came up with the $99 bundle. We tried it in the Halifax market just for some flyers. We didn't even do a big push and it just exploded to where we were booking, you know, 75 or 80 installs a day. And we were back that first fall, we were booking out like 10 weeks, which was driving us all crazy because we obviously wanted the revenue sooner than later. It was pissing the customers off because they had to wait so long for, this great deal, but we really, we had no idea how popular it was going to be, but it just, it just resonated. Well, you know, I, th- I thought at the time it was a brilliant move and uh, obviously paid off for you. Well, we're going to go with brilliant as opposed to lucky. So, <laughs> um, 
Can you tell us uh, what the main benefits are of the movement to 5G from 4G networks? And uh, when will 5G be the universal platform for internet service, Lee? Uh, well, I'll answer the last part of that first. I don't think ever. Uh, really? Okay. 5G's been, I think, one of the most... This is going to sound funny coming from a guy who's going to try to sell you 5G, but uh, one of the most overhyped technologies that I've seen rolled out so far. Um, it doesn't It doesn't mean there aren't advantages to it, but the idea that it's going to solve all these problems and it's going to make internet cheaper, that it's going to make rural internet possible is kind of ridiculous. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, what it's good for, I mean, what it does is it's very high speed. You can put a ton of data through the network uh, and very low latency. So it's very quick. So that has certain advantages. The challenge is, is the reach. Uh, because of the high data throughput and the frequencies that we use to do it, the reach is about a quarter of the distance of a regular 4G or 3G network. So it will be, you know, we will get pockets of the city where we will have seamless 5G. Uh, it, but the, the reason it's good is when it, the challenge we have with certain networks today are, I'll use the Scotiabank Center. You know, you're at a Mooseheads game, there's 10,000 people there, a goal is scored, and today, half the people there on their cell phones taking a video clip and uploading it to Instagram or Facebook or something so all their friends can see that they were there. Well, that puts a huge strain uh, of this crush of people on one cell site, and yet the performance grinds to a halt. Now, 5G right. is wonderful for that. Um, but... And, you know, as, as the guys who I buy the equipment from keep saying, it's going to be great for driverless cars. We'll have 5G, I'll call them 5G cell sites or hotspots at intersections. So driverless cars can upload new navigational information very quickly and, you know, keep the road safe for driverless cars. I said, that's fantastic, except that you're trying to sell me $50 million worth of gear for a bunch of people who don't actually have driverless cars yet. So I'm not... I'm not really ready to make that investment. Now, that being said, we are investing in 5G. We want to understand it and be there when some of these business cases happen. But, you know, for it's terrible for rural. It's just the tower sites are too far apart. It's got no value. You need to have a fiber backhaul. It's got so much capacity. You have to have a deep fiber network to connect all the cell sites, which is and if you, so if in rural areas you had a deep fiber network, you wouldn't have a high speed Internet problem. So right, right. I don't know. It's uh, people. I they, I think generally don't understand it, and it's gotten just overhyped on what it's going to be able to do. And it's just you know, it's just another technology. Your cell phone's going to work the same. Nobody's going to know the difference. I joke a little bit about how one of the latest Apple phones actually has some functionality on their new software upgrade is to shut off five G because it's so. It's so power intensive on the battery. So the cell phone <laughs> providers are now making it easy for you to not use the 5G network. <laughs> well, you know, I think that that's going to, that explanation is going to surprise a lot of people because I think everybody believes that 5G is the next best thing, you know, from sliced bread. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, why are governments around the world concerned about the 5G networks uh, offered by China's Huawei, uh, considered by many to be the leading 5G technology company right now? 
Uh, why are government? I mean, I don't know. I am to be honest. I don't know. Some of it's politics. Uh, is there any truth to it? I, you know, I don't know. We've have used some Huawei gear in our network, not in the core areas of the network, but some of the, I call them the passive pieces. They're not the smartest parts of the network. You know, their equipment, we, we talked to them about, you know, buying their equipment. We ended up going with Ericsson. Ericsson were a, more of the global standard. Nothing the matter with the Huawei equipment. Is it full of Chinese military chips? I don't know. I think a lot of that's likely some <laughs> competitive hype and maybe anti-China propaganda for political reasons. But on the other hand, uh, you know, there have been some crazy things on other, you know, manufactured chips that have come out of China and people, there have been some strange things. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not, not close enough to that. I, you know, we're, you know, lots of trade challenges with China. Is this just a lever that governments are pulling? Maybe, but yeah. I don't know, not a big issue for us. We don't have a bunch of their gear anyway. Uh, it's clear that high-speed network is now considered a right in Canada rather than a privilege, regardless of where you live. Um, where is Canada in general and the four Atlantic province in particular in terms of the percentage of the population with high-speed internet today? We're, uh, we're, we're about 85% covered from a country, and generally every province is about there. Uh, you know, we all where we all break down is once you get into the real rural areas. Now, uh, I'll say 85%, but I know because we do operate out West, there are, uh, you know, the density when you get outside the cities in like Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta, you go miles. We have a lot of, I call it ribbon rural in PEI, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, where it's not quite that bad. Uh, so we actually have more physical geography covered, but, it still ends up being about 85% of the population. Uh, you know, what's it going to take to get the last 15%? You know, lots of money, lots of time, lots of effort. And I don't know if any of us have enough money to do it, but yeah. it's a bigger issue. You know, let's get into that a little bit because, you know, clearly uh, rural communities need to be heavily subsidized in the creation of high-speed uh, internet services in their communities. Can you provide our listeners with an idea of how costly it is to provide rural broadband services relative to the cost of doing so in more urban urban settings? Uh, you know, I think that that's a, it's a good question. And that is the big challenge. It's, you know, we, on average, it's about $50,000 a kilometer to build, I call it a wired network, really a fiber network, same network we build, Rogers, Shaw, Bell, Telus, everybody, we all build the same same network. It's about $50,000 a kilometer. So to put it in perspective, uh, the density in Halifax, based on sort of customers per road kilometer, because you build your networks on the roads, it's about, we have about 100 customers per kilometer. And lots of people are going to say, oh my God, that sounds like a lot. But you have to remember, apartment buildings kind of skew that. You can have a 100-foot street frontage with 200 units in it, and that gives you a big advantage. So the density is the difference. And then you get out to rural areas, Cumberland County, where I grew up in Collingwood outside of Oxford, we're at about eight or 10 homes per kilometer. So you've got a, a factor of 10 changing the economics. So, you know, in Halifax, you're $500 a customer. And in Collingwood, where I grew up, you're $5,000 a customer of capital. 
And that's not a customer, actually. That's just a home passed. And then we're competing with somebody else. So the amount of capital that's required is crazy. And that's and this is where we have built the networks. So you can get stretched out to areas where you get two or three homes per kilometer. And then it's just, it, it gets to be ridiculous how much capital it is. And, you know, it's the it's not just the one-time capital. And I, people challenge me on this. Well, oh, why can't we do like we did rural electrification when we all subsidized and everybody paid the same power rates and we built electrical uh, the electrical utility out to rural areas. I said, well, yeah, that's fine, but people don't use 30% more power every year and you don't have to overbuild the electrical grid. We do. People use more and more internet every year and there's only so much capacity on the network and I have to put more capital in just to satisfy the existing customers. So in these real rural areas, you have a challenge of not only the one-time capital to build it, but you have to rent space on the poles, you have travel costs, a lot of operational costs, and the ongoing capital to keep the network up to speed. And it just becomes, like we know there are rural areas that we operate in that unless we had the cities to balance it off, they wouldn't stand on their own two feet from an economic standpoint. Like I know where I grew up, if, if we were only building the Oxfords and Collingwoods, they would never get built. They only got built because we could help subsidize it from the Halifax, the Truros, the Sydneys, and the New Glasgow's. So, and now you're talking about what we what does it take to do the real rural ones? And it's as I said, it's it's a lot of money up front. It's continued money year after year, and and there are reasonable solutions which don't cost as much as ours. Not that I want to sell my competitive service for them, but you know sometimes you might have to put up with a service that's not quite as good as ours, but is not going to cost, you know, the kitchen sink when it comes to giving up healthcare, giving up education dollars to subsidize for kids to watch Netflix. Well, you know, um, I, I, you know, I think that to be clear, uh, the subsidization of the build is mainly government money. Um, you know, consumers aren't contributing directly to that, but they, they do contribute to the uh, monthly, cost of rural service right there's they are the people living in halifax and moncton and charlottetown and and the urban areas of atlantic canada are paying higher fees so that people living in rural areas can pay the same fee as they do right but the cost of delivery is much higher 100 percent. but that's not i mean that sounds like oh we're taking advantage of the urban dwellers but but this is this is really the case for almost anything, whether it's roads, sewer, water, busing. I mean, yep. the urban areas subsidize the suburban and rural areas. That's yeah, I understand that, but I, you know, I think that a, a lot of people uh, living in rural areas, you know, they they expect to be subsidized. A lot of them are paying really low property taxes, as an example. They're not paying. They're not paying the same taxes that other people are paying on top of paying subsidized rates for, you know, telecommunication services, for electricity, you know, and I, everybody wants to do the common good. But there, there needs to be a recognition that, uh, you know, not everybody's paying at the same rate for no, things. No, and not everybody. Well. I understand that people think it's a right, but 
you know, I, I get people arguing to me saying it should be like town water and sewer. It should be everywhere. I said, I live in the city and I don't have town water and sewer. <laughs> it is not everywhere. I mean, and I'm also, you know, I'm on the board of Nova Scotia Power. I know if you build your house down a mile long driveway off the grid, Nova Scotia Power is not going to pay to put the poles in to get to your house. You have to. So yeah. most people who live in rural areas understand that they live in a rural area, that their road might not get paved, yeah. that there might not be a hospital next door to them. There might not be a high school next door to them. And there might not be great high speed internet. These are just the, yeah. these are, this is what it is living in rural Nova Scotia, rural Canada. Uh, let's just uh, uh, find out a little bit about uh, the role that you're playing currently in increasing the availability of rural broadband. Based on your earlier com uh, comments, uh, it looks like you've stepped back from maybe what you had been doing before. Uh, so are, you're still doing some, but probably not as much as you did before. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've re-fired up some of our... Uh, building out of cellular networks into more rural areas, but we've not any high speed internet. We have not yet. And the big reason, and I talked about, you know, the biggest threat we have to our businesses are, is the federal government, which you know sounds a little flippant, but unfortunately that's the case is we have, we have two competing policies from Canada on high speed internet. We have one, which is we want to subsidize and encourage getting high speed internet built out to these high cost rural areas. Great. I mean, if that's going to be the policy, that's fine. But then we have another policy that says, you know, we think high-speed internet is too expensive, so we're going to force guys like me to sell it below cost to third-party internet providers to give them a cost advantage so they can compete in the marketplace and have cheaper pricing. I said, well, and they get access to my network anywhere at the drop of a hat. So why would I build into these high cost areas, just the minute you, if you wanted to be an ISP, could write a letter to the CRTC saying, I want access to Eastlink's network. They're going to say, okay. Then you send me a note to say, I'm the new ISP provider in, I don't know, pick somewhere, Pugwash uh, Advocate, uh, after I've built the network and you can go in and undercut me because you get to access my network at below my operating cost. It's kind of ridiculous. So why would any of us build into these areas? And then I get great policy advice from some of the feds who say, well, we have a pot of money to build these areas. Why don't you just ask us for more money and we'll subsidize you more? It's like, how on earth is that good public policy? We'll just get, just get more money to cover our losses that you created uh, in order to have, create this artificial economy on having low cost high-speed internet or low cost cell phones. Like they just, I mean, they made a political promise to lower the prices and there's yeah. no, they ignored the economics and just put it on us to subsidize our competitor. And then the real funny part of this is Bell doesn't have to do it. So I'm the only one in Atlantic Canada that has to provide third party access below cost. Bell, who's 10 times bigger than we are, gets a pass, which seems a little ridiculous, but that's is there, it. Is there a reason for that? Uh, uh a variety of, I think, poorly decided decisions by the CRTC on what constituted competition and who, and I don't know. You see, Bell, the funny thing is Bell has to do it in Ontario and Quebec, but somehow they won the argument that 
it was they have just recently spent tons of capital with their fiber to the home network. Uh, the Maritimes are very rural. They should have a reasonable period of time to get some payback on their capital expenditures. And I'm, I said, I built the same network in the same geography. I have the same arguments, but you know, <laughs> somehow they won the argument and I didn't. So, so, so you know, most of the uh, governments and, uh, uh, you know, again, focusing on Atlantic Canada have promised 100% high-speed access to the population. That doesn't sound, at least using the current model, that that's going to happen. And I guess, you know, that would be a, that's a challenge for companies like Eastlink in terms of, you know, playing a role in that. Um, so what what is the possibility of achieving 100% well, penetration? Uh, there, there are reasonable solutions. You know, as I said, I don't like to sell my competitive service, but you know, uh, SpaceX is actually a good service. It doesn't have the same capacity or throughput that we have, but it's pretty good. ExploreNet out in Brunswick, they have uh, sort of a, a wireless, sort of a cellular-like high-speed internet delivery. Again, not as good as, I'd say, Bell's or our fiber-based service, but again, not bad. But it comes down to so this is the rub. I, uh, this is the challenge I've always had. You, you have existing uh, internet providers who are capable of covering. Like actually, the reality is, one hundred percent of Canada can have high speed internet. It's is it the high speed internet that you want? Now, if you're paying ninety nine dollars for a SpaceX service and it's one tenth the fast uh, as fast as what I provide in the city for eighty nine dollars, you're going to say that's not fair. Well, but on the other hand. SpaceX isn't being subsidized by the federal government for gazillions of dollars, and they're making a business of it. So we should let them make a business of it. I mean, it's uh, it's going to cost more to provide rural service, and the service may not be as good. That's the economics of it. You can you can talk all you want about well, how much more should we subsidize it? But I don't know. It's but isn't it, it a isn't it a matter of setting realistic expectations about, you know, if you if you choose to live in some remote rural area, you're not going to have the city services, you know, uh, and, and even though internet service is now right, it may not be the same internet service that you could get if you lived in downtown Toronto or downtown Halifax. And, you know, you, you reference uh, Elon Musk's um, uh, Starlink as part of his SpaceX. Uh, you know, that project is, uh, it looks to be a, a viable alternative. You mentioned that uh, it's not as quick, it's, it's uh, you know, but it does offer uh, higher speed than what's available. Starlink, I think, has about, if I'm not mistaken, that has 1,800 satellites already in low Earth orbit. I mean, and, and I think the number that they're trying to get to to provide coverage everywhere globally Including the North and South Poles, it's unbelievable. Is something like, is it is it a hundred thousand satellites oh, at some point? Yes, sixty four, sixty eight thousand, or I've heard lots yeah. of numbers because it depends. But yeah, uh, but it's never going to be as fast or as reliable because you know you get you get weather events, yeah. <laughs> get storms, but uh, it's not going to be as fast as uh, fiber connection for sure. But it is part of the solution, is it not? Maybe that's maybe it's resetting expectations for people living in 
more remote communities saying, yeah, we can give you higher speed, but we can't give you the high speeds that you would get if you lived closer to urban areas. Is that, is that, as I think that's, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's about expectations. The challenge is, is how do you, how do you keep the politics out of it? Because it's great politics to say, yep. you know, you vote for me, I'm going to promise you get this, that, or the other thing. Uh, if it's just an economic-based discussion, then you're 100% right. And, you know, but that's, it's hard to keep the politicians' fingers out of it. Well, you know, I, I remember when uh, Steve McNeil got elected on the promise of everybody with their own doctor. That was never going to happen. That, that didn't happen anywhere in Canada at the time will never happen based on the change of uh, of uh, the docs coming into the marketplace and what they're expecting out of uh, their work life. Um, and and they're set an expectation for people living everywhere in, the, in, in Canada about high-speed internet without defining what high-speed is. You know, that's the problem, right? right? And, well, until, and the definition changes too because... And it gets bigger every day. You know, right. high-speed gets bigger every day because of the streaming. Everybody's streaming you know, so much that uh, the pipe's got to get bigger and bigger to deliver all those services, right? Yeah. So, you know, but you don't, you you actually don't see companies like Starlink as really much of a threat to your company, do you? No, not at all. I mean, and I actually think they're beneficial because it takes the pressure off us to have to deal with all these sort of ridiculous programs that the feds and sometimes the province try to talk us into for building out into these high cost areas. Like I'm, I'm happy to like, don't get me wrong. I'd love to have more customers, but I don't want to have more customers that cost me more to provide the service to than I can get revenue out of them. So uh, that if, if somebody's got a good economic market-based solution, like, you know, these guys have, then, they should have that marketplace. I'm, I'm, that's okay with me. Like I don't, they don't, they don't really, and won't be able to compete with me in the areas that I have, but that's right. fine. Yeah. Now the, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about, but the popularity of streaming services like Netflix and Crave has really led to a decline in regular cable services everywhere, I guess, as people cut the cord. How is this trend affecting Eastlink? Um, Exactly that way. I mean, we are slowly losing uh, video customers, but we we gain. I can't, I always have to remind myself we we do sell internet. So uh, you know, people, if you're going to stream, if you're going to cut your cable and you're going to stream, that means you consume more internet, which means you use my products and services even more, which then means I have to spend more capital on the net, network to provide the capacity, which then means I have to raise the price and it's, you know, the economics actually, actually better for me if, you know, I have many in the business and many in the broadcast world who hate it when I say this, but uh, I look forward to when video is all gone. Uh, Internet's a much simpler business to run. I have to pay my competitors, Bell and Rogers and others for access to the programming. Uh, The programming costs are going up like crazy. So I have a, a high a high cost product that people want less and less of. That's actually not a terrible thing for me. Right. So I mean, yeah. it's a it's a challenge in the short term because I can't just shut it off and abandon those customers. But 
my business actually looks better and is easier to run if I was just only providing internet. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you can't lose. <laughs> well, not, not really. I mean, where, where, where I can lose is if I spend a ton of capital on some new fancy video gear that in a declining customer scenario, I can never get a payback on it. So as long as, yeah, as long as I don't do stupid things, yeah. I can't lose. Are, are there, are there any changes that traditional cable can do that might combat this trend? I mean, you know, the thing that I hear a lot is that, oh my God, there's so many commercials. I can't stand it. If you do, if you're used to streaming, which is commercial free, that's the big barrier, isn't it? Uh, yeah, commercials, but that's what pays for it too. So you have to change the, you have to change the economic model and then say, well, if you want, if you want NBC with no commercials, that's great, but it's going to cost you $15 a month instead of whatever, a nickel or whatever it ends up costing you because I deliver it to you. So, you know, it's just, it's a different model. I mean, and is there a role for us? I don't, to be honest, I don't think so. We're too small. We're just a middleman in that. Like, I think there are going to be, we're not the only potential losers. Uh, you know, I, I referenced, you know, Bell and Rogers and some of these content providers who we buy some of these channels from. Uh, they'll be the losers too. They're really just middlemen as well. It's, I mean, because of the internet, you can go, you know, there's, you know, sports teams that are going direct to the consumer over the internet. Uh, right. You know, Disney, I mean, they're, they're bypassing the traditional, you know, Sony, Paramount, they're going to make movies and they're just going to cut out the HBOs and then the Bells and then the East Links. Like there's a there's a lot of middlemen in that chain that don't need to be there. Now, right. we have part of the challenge Canada has is we've got some content regulations around Canadian culture and certain rules. So, you know, we have a Canadianized HBO, for example, versus U.S. HBO. Well, uh, if if Sony Pictures stops selling their movies to HBO, are and goes direct to Canadian consumers, are they going to care about the Canadian regulatory environment that says Canadians, you're not allowed to watch that version of that? It's not hmm. Canadian enough. Like I don't like you can you can police us. Like the CRTC and the government can come say, you know, Eastlink, you're doing something wrong. Stop accessing that U.S. content. Uh, and we and we stop, uh, but every consumer stop watching that U.S. Like I don't, it, that it's going to get hard. So I just think it's that's and I don't I don't know the answer. I think the content business is going to be changed so much over the next little while. We're small players. It's not. I don't I don't have any solutions for it. I don't see who's going to win or who's going to lose. I don't know how the regulator's going to police it. Uh, so I'm not even I'm not even going to try. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's hard to manage a declining business, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, those are the yeah, yeah. It's more more fun to manage a growing business. So, <laughs> we can, but I I tend to think of it. It's not a business. It's just a product. Sure. Lots of people sell lots of products. Products become popular, less popular. We oh, just yeah. just find something else. Yeah, I want to just uh, conclude our conversation on a something that's happened recently. Um, um, Rogers has proposed uh, purchasing Shaw Communications. It would be a big deal uh, in Canada. I guess it's, you know, there's the competition bureaus looking at it to make sure that they accept it. But if that deal goes through, 
Um, what impact will that have on Eastlink? Uh, I'd say really next to none. I don't, and I actually don't think it has much of an impact on anybody. It has an impact on Shaw and Rogers who have to trade a big bucket load of money. But, uh, uh, but for consumers, I mean, I had the competition bureau call us and call me and ask me some of those similar questions. I was, I was surprised how I think they thought too, that it should be a bigger issue, but I said, it's, you know, the biggest competitor Shaw has out West is tell us the fact that the name of the door is now Rogers instead of Shaw doesn't, doesn't change that competitive landscape any. Uh, we're not out there. Well, we are. We compete against TELUS, but it won't be competing. We don't compete against Shaw, so we won't compete against Rogers. There's no no real – I mean, there's a couple of potential areas that some groups might be critical of, and we just get done talking about content. Shaw has a little bit of content, so some people are worried about more Canadian content being aggregated in the hands of Rogers. Now, Bell are the biggest owners already. Shaw spun most of theirs out to Chorus, a separate business now. So they own a little bit left. So it doesn't really, I say that doesn't really matter whether whether Shaw owns the content and I have to buy it from Shaw or Rogers or Bell. doesn't matter. I think it's a dying business. I don't think any of it matters in the long run anyway. So that doesn't matter. The other piece that is a potential bit of an issue from a competition bureau standpoint is Freedom Mobile, which Shaw owns. There is a bit of an overlap, predominantly in Ontario where it would be like a competitor coming out of the market. I get why that's an issue. I suspect what Rogers is going to have to do is to spin that off. Uh, and, but I think they know that. I don't think they've, they already have a wireless network, so they don't need another one. So I don't think they care about having to sell that unit to get the deal done. So, you know, there's there's a bunch of regulatory hurdles that has to go through, but none of them, there's no, uh, there's no big, big issue other than, again, if politicians want to get in the middle of it and say, oh, this is not in the best interest of Canadians and they get cabinet to kill it, which I think would be a terrible state of affairs. Like I've already said, we're at the risk of, you know, Canada becoming uninvestable just because of so much regulatory and political nonsense that goes on. I mean, I talked to U.S. people who I work with in some of the U.S. telco, they just think Canada's a basket case sometimes. It's like, how, how can you even operate there? But uh, yeah. so, I mean, I think we have to be careful that we don't over-politicize our business environment. Uh, Lee, Eastlink is the, the largest independent telecommunications company in Canada, I believe. <clears throat> Obviously, there is some consolidation happening in the industry. You're probably a pretty attractive target for some of those bigger telecommunications companies, unless you're planning to buy them. What, what are your plans in terms of uh, continuing ownership of Eastlink and uh, by the Bragg family? Uh, we've not even thought about changing anything. We, we like the business. I mean, it's a fair question. And lots of people ask me that all the time, but uh, I've, you know, you know, we've often, we've, we've sort of talked about it in the terms that as long as we can run it as good or better than some of the other guys, and as long as we can, you know, still provide good products and services to our customers, and as long as we can still provide job opportunities and good growth for our employees, uh, then we should own it. Now, 
we have the advantage of, because all of our competitors, and even not our competitors, but all the others, uh, are publicly traded. So we get to see all their information. And we know, you know, our average revenue is better, our margins are a little better, like all the metrics, we, we do okay compared to a lot of those other guys. And I would say even in more challenging environments, because we're, we are disproportionately rural than a lot of those right. other guys. Right. But uh, we don't have a lot of big overhead costs. We don't have to pay out big dividends. We don't have to support big board costs. We're, we tend to be more efficient and leaner operators. So as long as there's no big economy of scale technology hurdle that we can't get over, or as long as those previous things that I mentioned, you know, treating the customers and the employees, and as long as we can run the business, why, why shouldn't we own it? We like owning it. We think we do an okay job. We don't don't need to sell it. So. Well, I, I just have to say it's great to have a head office um, in Halifax for a company of your size. I think it's really important to have uh, you know local companies uh, doing well uh, for the local economy. So, I want to congratulate you for your success. Also, uh, I understand it that your dad's uh, new book uh, from by Donald Savoy is uh, on the newsstands. Uh, what's it called again? Uh, oh, that's a good good plug. I've got it right here. <laughs> it's the called, Rural Entrepreneur. Yeah, I'm looking forward to picking that up. I, I'm anxious to read it. I'm really happy that uh, that story has been told, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to make sure they get a copy of that book because it's uh, the brag story is a terrific story and and Lee you're part of that. I want to thank you for taking part uh, in in the Insights podcast and providing us with the insights on this really important uh, topic that really impacts every single Canadian. So thanks a lot for being on our program. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a great opportunity. Thanks. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.